You're listening to the Modern People Leader Podcast. Today's episode will be a part of our People Leader Series, where we go behind the scenes with today's top HR leaders and talk to them about how they've gotten to where they're at and what they really do every day. Our guest today is David Hanrahan, CHRO at Eventbrite. So today we have David Hanrahan, who's the CHRO at Eventbrite. David, welcome to the Modern People Leader. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So you were introduced to us by Kristen Barber, and I believe the two of you started your careers together, or I know worked together very early on in your career at Shell in the oil and gas industry. Is that right? Yeah, about as night and day of a, a world and environment as we can imagine. Yeah, we, we worked together at a refinery um, and a Shell oil refinery where we were both early in our careers and kind of a business partner mode at Shell Oil Refinery in Martinez, California. And ironically, you both made your way into the high tech industry. And so give us a short version of your journey. How do you go from Shell working at the refinery to now, you know, CHRO at a, at a top high tech firm? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, so, so I don't make it too long of a story. I, I got into this work really just from being passionate about psychology in undergrad, stumbled into a course called industrial psychology, which is psychology of the workplace. And that led me from a couple of professors just saying like, hey, there's this whole field that has sprung up with, with schools, largely in the Midwest because of, you know, the sort of rise of, of industry and in the automotive industry back, gosh, um, almost a hundred years ago where there's factories and labor laws started to spring up, you know, National Labor Relations Act and this, and then the NLRB and management at the time was suddenly like really unprepared to deal with what was a proliferation of, of new labor laws. And so they, they had these graduate programs at places like Ohio State and Michigan State and University of Illinois to help management teams at that time. So when I started looking at these programs, th that was kind of their legacy, these, these kind of programs. And thus, I sort of got into it with an interest in labor relations and wanting to do work with unions and management teams and like collective bargaining and arbitration and sort of grievance, you know, dispute and resolution and, and contracts was all stuff that I was really fascinated uh, by and, and in particular employment law. And that's, that's how we started. And that's how me and Kristen met up. And that's how I started my career. Um, and then to kind of to, to end the story, I got kind of disenchanted with that mode of like 100 year old companies just don't move really quickly. It's kind of like, hey, you know, thanks for all the ideas. We figured this out 100 years ago, just abide by the contract. And um, that that sort of like led me one way or another to exploring a little bit faster moving industries where they hadn't developed a whole bunch of rules yet. And like, we were kind of trying to innovate and be creative. And that's that was tech, so you know, electronic arts, where I spent about four years, and then Twitter before the IPO and through the IPO, Zendesk, uh, Niantic, and then most recently at Eventbrite for the past year and a half or so. And and so at Eventbrite, you you are the CHRO. Is this your first time in that in that role? Uh, not the first time in the the, the um, top people role. So. Um, uh, Zendesk and then Niantic most recently was a top people job. The, the first time with this title of, of chief HR officer, that's the first uh, time with that title. And I think most of our audience know Eventbrite's business. I'm curious how, 
has the, how did the pandemic impact? Clearly there was an impact. Has that changed your business model? What sort of evolution or, or roller coaster have you guys been on? At yeah. Event oh my gosh. I, I didn't know I'd be joining a live events company right before a, a pandemic put the entire live events industry on, on hold. But yeah, it was a pretty, pretty massive impact to certainly the entire industry and, and not just us. Um, you know, impact to travel, impact to hospitality, impact to, you know, wherever people would gather. And, and so for us, we felt the impact pretty quickly right after I, I can remember being at an offsite in Nashville in, in early March, 2020, and just thinking, gosh, this is getting a little bit dicey. We got to get on a plane and go home. I don't even know if they're going to like shut off the sort of travel industry here. And coincidentally, a tornado happened during our offsite. So I was like, this is no going to be way. really, yeah. Like, this is going to be a really interesting year. We wound up taking a look at how we're running the business, basically. And we were running the business in a, in a very unique way, sort of verticals. We were trying to be in every different uh, country. We were localizing product. We were trying to bend the product for different types of um, creators. And we did two things. We, we completely flipped our business model. So we, we, we said, going forward... Uh, through this pandemic and a post-pandemic world, we're going to emerge really strong by being a horizontal company where we're self-serve. So we build a product that is so intuitive and gives our creators everything they need that we're going to like win on the intuitiveness of our product for our creators rather than having to go through heavy RFP processes, handhold people through event creation uh, and bending the product depending upon the top of vertical you are. So horizontal, self-serve uh, focus, and really focusing on, on less geographies, focusing on geographies where we had most of our creators using, using the product. And that restructuring also involved a major company restructuring. So restructuring the business, restructuring the company. We had a pretty significant riff, you know, um, a year, a little over a year ago, which had a big impact to uh, the morale of the company. And so we had a big impact to our creators. Um, you know, that was tough. We had a big impact to our employees. And I guess what I could say is here we are in July, 2021, and we've like almost come full circle, you know, live events are coming back in, in the U S like maybe each of you have been to sort of like a live event of some shape or form. It's great. Eventually that will be in every other country we operate in. We know that we're fortunate here in the U S so um, live events are coming back. Um, the morale of the company has, has really rebounded almost night and day. It's almost like the morale of the company when we went IPO. So that's been a pretty significant shift. And uh, so, yeah, it's been a whirlwind. It sounds like it, like you impacted uh, at almost every level of the company. And, and now here we are back to where we were before, not quite, but essentially starting to, to, to emerge from all this. I went to my first live event weeks ago and man it was just such a such a thrill to be back in that type of experience so glad to hear that you guys have emerged in a, in a positive way yeah definitely yeah i'm excited about it myself <laughs> yeah i need to make it out to a live event here pretty soon so david I, I wanted to ask you about a linkedin post that you posted about a month ago and just so our listeners have some context i'll, I'll go ahead and read it out for everybody it says as you hear about employers requiring their staff to come back to the office for X days per week, once restrictions lift, I thought I'd share that at Eventbrite, we leave the choice to our employees. You can come back to the office as many days per week as you want or continue working from home remote. It's tricky to build a culture this way, but we're going to do it and do it well because we believe employee choice and employee choice and flexibility is what will un unlock the most of your potential. 
So first of all, I, I think that this post resonated with a lot of people. I think it had something crazy like 19,000 likes. Um, but my question is, given that that it's the more tricky route, I'm just I'm just curious if you can expand on on your thoughts on why you've decided to go this route. And speaking to the the culture side of it, is there anything that Eventbrite is doing to be more deliberate about building culture in this environment where some people are in the office and you know some people maybe will never step foot back in the office? Yeah, great question. I I, I should share that like I found that the people the LinkedIn posts that I write that people that resonate with people the most are the ones that I think about the least. So. If I have like a you know, glass of wine in my hand, I'm just like quickly fire something off versus if I like, I'm going to plan this post out for a day. Uh, those, those posts I think about the most are the ones that get like no reaction and the ones that are just like, boop, 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 you know, like, come, you know, like you can come back if you want. Um, yeah, but it resonated with people. So, um, and, and I kind of knew it was going to resonate with people because a lot of companies had been in the news with coming out and saying, you got to come back to work. And prominent tech companies at that time, who some some of them have since relented and saying, "Okay, okay, we've heard we've heard the outcry. We're gonna we're gonna do about face." I knew that people were worried about this. I saw a post recently that upwards of ten percent of a company would leave their company if they're required to be back in the office full time. So I knew that this was um, that people were worried about this, and there's large proportions of the workforce, um, oftentimes female, underrepresented, that preferred the, this type of flexibility in their jobs, and that this was a thing. It was a zeitgeisty thing that was out there at the time. Back to the origin of this for us, it was probably last summer. This time we had a we had a project team. I will not take credit for it, but we had a project team. That was debating, you know, hey, in a, in a post-pandemic world, we're all working from home right now. Are we going to continue this? You know, are we going to continue one year from now if, if the if the world gets a vaccine in the summer of 2021 and we can all go back, are we going to continue it? Because we're starting to get settled into like working from home. And so what are we going to do? And we decided roughly then, so summer last summer into kind of early fall 2020, that we were going to in a post-pandemic world, continue to allow people to choose and just like, you know, we call it, you can be a hubbling, meaning I'm going to come back full time. I'm going to be a flexing. I'm going to kind of come and go. I'm going to be remoteling. And that choice involved also choosing where you wanted to work. So like, you know, within, within your country, if you want to move to a different region, province, state, city, et cetera, you can choose to do that. And this idea of choice and empowerment and flexibility was just something we kept coming back to then and thinking about and reading about and seeing where where work was going, that if you trust your workforce, if you operate in a high trust mode, you move quick. You you develop great products. Like you you get the most out of like the really talented staff that you hire. And if you don't trust, that that shows up. If you have mistrust, it shows up in all sorts of different ways. One of those is you know you got to be in the office. I got to see you. I your leader has to see you. Otherwise, I don't know if work is getting done. And that's common, you know, that is a lot of leaders are just, they, you know, they think that way. And it's just not because they're, they're it will, but they just, it's kind of human nature sometimes. Like I got to see my team. And so we had these debates. We had some leaders, frankly, who's like, oh, I don't know, I'm not comfortable with this. This kind of seems, this is going to be tricky. Do we really, and I will credit our CEO. So, so Julia was one of the ones who just sort of said, this is what we're going to do. And we, so we made that choice. 
and it resonated for people well at the time. And, and I think it's probably resonating even more so now, once we've realized like actually how difficult it is and how, how other large companies are kind of veering against it. And I think uh, the CEO of Asana wrote a tweet the other day that sort of like, he predicted this curve of like, yeah, some of you are saying you're open to it now, but you're going to change. You're, you're going to, you're eventually going to, you know, like when, when Yahoo said everyone has to come back to the office and some there's companies in, in history that have gone this route of you can work from home and then like, nope, we're going to change it. And so back to your question, what are you doing? Cause we want this to stick. It is very hard. We've reopened offices now in Nashville, LA, our Melbourne office has been open and it's kind of closed or locked down. But what we're realizing right now um, in the office that we've reopened is you have to fundamentally rethink your, your interpretation of what an office is. For us, an office used to be, that was work. 97% of our staff worked from an office. Only 3% were remote before the pandemic. And now in a post-pandemic world, for us at least, an office isn't where work happens. An office is almost just a tool. It's just like your office is your laptop. It could be on a beach, it can be in a mountain, it could be here in my weird office with crown molding. And the office is really just another environment. Like we provide an environment. Maybe some people feel like they do their best work. They think creatively. If you go for a walk, if you get on a plane, if you have an office that you can work from with, with good Wi-Fi and conference rooms. And like, occasionally we might all want to collaborate. We might have, we want to have some in, in person experience because if you're forced to be working from home for the rest of your job, your tenure at a company, maybe that's not good either. Maybe, maybe some of us get a little bit sick of that. So companies that are sort of saying we're going to be remote fully are going to have their own with the people who are like, I'm going to occasionally need to see people. I'm going to occasionally need to go into an office. So, so back to what are we doing? We're, we're iterating and we're learning. Like don't have, don't have it all figured out. I had a conversation on that, that very same thread you posted with Darren Murphy from, from GitLab that have done a lot of really great work on this. And then the Asana CHRO about what are we doing? There are various things. Like we're starting new practices around when you have a meeting, if you're in the office, everyone should, should dial into the meeting instead of like some people are in the office and dialing into the meeting from the conference room, everyone dial in. That's one example. Um, you know, like having a remote leader, like you have a site leader is, is, is an idea we're experimenting with. A lot of what we're doing right now is just experimenting with different practices. We had a workshop yesterday with the managers that are in the LA and, and uh, national offices that have reopened. We did a workshop with uh, life labs around behaviors of inclusion. I think there's a big part around sort of like, you have to reshape your sort of thoughts on like, how do you manage inclusively in that type of environment? So that's my sort of paraphrase is a lot of it is like, we haven't figured it out yet, but we're intent on figuring it out through learning and sort of borrowing best practices from others. Well, it's, it's interesting because in the same post that Daniel referenced, you explicitly say that the path you've chosen will be tricky to build a culture but you've still chosen this kind of digital first employee centric model, which I, I think is the right model. But let's talk about culture a little bit. Do you think that culture is changing for most companies in this post COVID future of work context? Like I, should we be looking at culture fundamentally differently than we have in the past? I think that we all know that the famous uh, Peter Drucker quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast, but it feels like culture is, is changing for everyone just as a function of this, the situation we're in. So I'm just curious your thoughts there and how culture factored into some of the, the, the decision that you made. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know about you, but like 
you know, when you're going through a pandemic for 16 straight months, like what's important to you in your life changes. I've got kids you could probably hear yelling behind me. And as a parent thinking about what's important to me, organizations do that at scale. What's important to us? Like suddenly all our, all our employees are like reflecting on like, do I want to do this job? Is this what I meant? Is this what I was meant to do in my career? I've, I've been kind of forced to reflect. And, and so I think one way that organizations that are going to really embrace hybrid work or just any, any big change, we're going to go, you know, remote by default now to succeed, you go back to your, your values. I will just share that. Like we've, we developed values three years ago that are a little bit stale. Like, yeah, you know, if I polled a random employee, can you tell me your val- uh, values? I, I would bet that m- most of our employees cannot tell me what our values are unless they just heard me talk about them in, in orientation. And so we have this project team that are, that is, um, that's kicked off really because of this idea that you have to go back to understanding who you are in a, in a mode when you're highly disrupted, because if we, if you don't know what you value and then how that shows up in practice, it's hiring promotions, like leadership development, even kind of how we, how we communicate in all hands in different forums. If you don't, then you're kind of adrift, right? You're just sort of like new leaders are adrift. Like, well, I don't know what I should, how I should pin this sort of decision on. So like it's hiring decision or whatever. So I'm just going to go off of my, my default. Then you have this like divergence in your culture and disruptive modes can exacerbate that divergence much more than like, Hey, everything's kind of like smooth sailing right now. So a disruption for us is going to hybrid work. And so it's a perfect time to go back to the values. And so we have that going on. And so, yes, I think it's highly important for organizations that feel like they're going to be going through some disruption ahead to go back to your values. And maybe they're absolutely right. And you're, the work is really just sort of like, hey, let's figure out how we're actually living these in different practices. But for us, it's both. What are the values? And then how do we have these show up in practices so that we're building a coherent, convergent culture instead of a divergent culture? And I think if we do that, then we're going to manage better through hybrid work. Yeah, and I think it's smart recognizing this is having an impact to our culture. Like the world has changed, our personal lives have changed, this company has changed. And that doesn't mean we've lost everything, but these external forces are certainly having an impact and like recognizing that is is really, really important. I had a call earlier today with an HR team for a, a large regional bank and they have a values-based culture and they have like you go to the website there's like the digital interactive book and you know, you see a page for each of their values it's they they pride themselves on this and they were panicking like our we've got to we've got to focus on culture we've got to do surveys on culture and you know i asked like well are you sure that that's what you need to be focusing on now like there's so many other things happening it just was um, curious to me that they would be focusing that. And, and I, I think that's a natural instinct to want to like get control of, you know, the culture. And, but I think there's so many other things happening that it makes sense to see how this is all going to play out, focus on some priorities, like, you know, bringing your people back into this new working model in a way that, that is as seamless as it can be. And, and seeing how this will evolve your culture and take you down whatever direction that is. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, do you have any, any recommendations to the people, leaders that are panicking right now that their culture is at risk? Well, I, you know, one thing to think about is um, 
culture is a little bit different than engagement, right? So um, what I mean by that is a lot of the people leaders listening, maybe measuring their engagement and maybe their engagement is good or maybe their engagement is bad. That doesn't necessarily mean your culture is bad or your culture is good because one's qualitative and one is quantitative and you can have great engagement and we have no idea who we are, you know, and conversely, we have really low engagement, but we know exactly who we are. And so thinking of those as, as, as different is, is one, is one uh, suggestion. And on the, on the culture front, in terms of like, how do you actually go about, you know, re-examining who you are? What's the right way to do that? One thing I found is there's no right way to do it. There's, there's kind of, a, there's a train of thought on engagement right now. Like you, there's like, you know, there's Gallup, you know, or there's kind of like, you know, culture and five, the five questions or whatever. And like, eh, okay, we'll, we'll defer to experts there. I'm not going to try and reimagine that wheel. But on how you actually re-examine your culture, you can do bottoms up, you can do top down, you can do sort of like a mixture of both. And sometimes organizations kind of get into analysis paralysis mode there around like, ah, oh, what's the right way to do this? Because if it's top down, it won't resonate. If it's bottoms up, it's going to be inaccurate because it'll be misaligned with what the leaders think. And should we, should we bring in a third party in to help us? Should we do this ourselves? You know, my experience is as best as possible, get some of the people closest to that piece of work who are like most in tune with the culture, who you think of as like, if I just had to ask, like, hey, tell me your, tell me about our culture. These five people, these five people, and it's a diverse group, different functions, like they, they would be it. Get them in a room and, hey, we need to do this work. We need to re-examine. They'll figure out a way uh, with some support and resources to to make it happen. Um, it starts with just sort of putting one step forward and kind of not trying to overanalyze it too much. Gotcha. I love that. So, yeah. So switching gears a little bit, I found another interesting quote on your LinkedIn that that you uh, referenced. Trust is the only legal performance enhancing drug. And then there was a longer post talking about it. And I think you posted this in, in response, again, I, you mentioned this earlier, but in response to companies mandating their employees coming into the office. And uh, yeah, it feels like in a lot of ways, companies are grasping for control. Like somehow the power has shifted from being in the company's hands, you know, in the past to now being in the employee's hands. And yeah, do you, do you think this is a breakdown in systemic trust or fear, or is it both? It's just, it's just really interesting to see this happening at such a you know broad scale. Like this is happening across the board at every company. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. I you know um, I'm just picking up on some other social media posts. Um, someone commented about how it's kind of it's kind of ironic how an organization can expect you to like perform at home in a pandemic for 16 or 18 months and juggle all that you need to juggle in your life. And then suddenly not trust you to continue that. Like now it's time to come back because we can, we can open the offices that somehow something is right. And so, yeah, there is a trust thing there. And there's a, a prominent company where the leader said that they ran an analysis and people do their best work from the office. And like, when you look at the analysis, you're just sort of like really like specious and like, you know, um, like questionable. And, and so there is a trust thing there and trust goes both ways, obviously. So if you have an organization where people are abusing sort of privilege to work from home, then something is broken there, right? It goes, it goes both ways. 
But if we're operating well, where the sort of the employees are trusting their leaders and leaders are trusting their staff, great things can happen in, in innovation and performance and speed delivery and sort of customer satisfaction. Like, I think all that's, that's true. And I do think there is a moment here where organizations uh, across the globe, particularly in software, but multiple different industries are going to be deciding whether they have that trust there or not. And it shows up in a lot of different ways, trust and, and, and mistrust. And so I was thinking about that. And the reality is I'm not so like radical as to say that like, just don't do anything and let your employees like self-manage and like, you don't have to, you know, like you have to provide direction. Like you have to manage, you have to lead, you have to give feedback. You have to let people know, like when they've, you know, kind of veered off course, but when you operate with a default to trust on my personal point of view is that if you're hiring good people, then if you default to trust, that's when the, the magic happens, right? If you're hiring bad people, then obviously it's hard to trust. If you're hiring, if you're making hiring mistakes, but if you're hiring good people and you're putting the leaders in the right position, they should trust their talent. And there's a quote, I'm going to butcher it from an author that I like, where it's hire the best, communicate frequently, provide challenges and rewards, get out of their way and they'll knock your socks off. And that's uh, that's maybe a sort of servant leader way of, of looking at human nature. And, you know, the skeptic, there's a skeptic out there that say like, no, you can't, you, you gotta like, you gotta default to, you know, people are going to kind of try and take advantage of you. I just don't, I just don't live that way. And, you know, maybe sometimes to my detriment, but I believe in, in trust as being a performance enhancing drug like that, like that quote. Yeah, I think you said something in there about trust and communication, and it feels like they go hand in hand, right? Like, if you're a leader and you're not trusting the, the people on your team, um, like, why? Is it because you, you don't have good communication between you and that employee? Because if you feel like something's going wrong, why don't you just reach out and ask them about it, right? Like, it feels like it's as simple as that. And then, you know, if it's still not continuing to work out, then yeah, maybe the employee's taking advantage of the company. But I think for the most part, people are still getting their work done. People are still productive. And I think that there should be that trust. Yeah, I, you know, I've, I've worked with, that's, that's really well said. I'm, I can't really armchair psychoanalyze why leaders would not trust, but, I, but certainly like we take baggage with us and like leaders who, um, founders who have, who have gone through tough times before and have like saved their company, you know, and have, um, have really scratched and clawed their way to sort of create a company that is doing really well, may have experienced, you know, breakdowns in trust before where they're like, never again, never going to let that happen to us again, because I'm looking out for my people. I'm looking out for my family. I'm looking out. And that, that puts that leader on guard. And so again, it's not ill will. It's like, they're doing, you know, sort of like they're taking something with them from baggage that will then color the, how the whole organization operates. I've certainly worked with leaders that have been there where they just, they can't afford to be trusting, you know, default trusting anymore based on things that have happened in the past. And, um, that's not uncommon. And, yeah. uh, you know, if I'm working with an exec coach, I would maybe try and like work on that. Yeah. I mean, that, that really, having founded my own business, I, that I relate to that. And part of 
part of what for me drives that is fear, like fear that we're going to end up in this situation that we're going to have to claw our way out. And we may not be able to do that again, especially in, in many times leaders have had to claw their way out several times. It hasn't been like a single instance. And so for me, a lot of it has to do with fear, fear that, uh, fear of the unknown and what will happen and where that'll take the business. And I think that that is, you know, has to do with a lot of the, the, I guess the seesaw effect that's happening right now. And we're going to return to the work. Oh no, actually, maybe we should trust you more. And we take that back. You know, some of the, some of what you were describing earlier, David. And so, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how all of this plays out or continues to play out. One of the hypotheses that that I share that I've shared with Daniel, I have a lot of ideas and hypotheses, but one of them is that we are entering a new labor market of sorts, that there is a bifurcation of the labor pool and there is a virtual labor pool and an in-office labor pool, and that companies are going to begin really going hard in the paint in terms of branding themselves as to what are you catering to? And Apple seems to be taking the, the, the in office, you know, we're, we're going to cater to the people that want to, that want to collaborate and work in office versus the drives of the world that are, that have been very vocal about digital first. And so I'm just curious, you know, your thoughts of this idea of there being kind of this dual labor pool now. Yeah, I, I do think that's happening, probably happening in, in software and where it's highly portable, your skill is highly portable, you can do your work wherever you want. And the, the pandemic, I think, really shown a spotlight on like, I don't need to be in an office. And then organizations at scale saying, we don't need an office, like we don't need to be in the office, like the, the nine to five in the office, Monday through Friday, I think is a legacy of, um, it's probably a, you know, a byproduct of, of labor law, frankly, but um it's probably, you know, shown to be in, in software is just sort of like, like a relic. And thus my, my skill is my skill for my nine to five in the office employer, or is it portable? Do I need to work nine to five, you know, Monday through Friday? Can I work when I want to work at my company? Can I just get my job done in two days and then tap out and really kind of come and go as I please? In a high trust environment, you know, you can, that was another part of my post, which is like suddenly like in a high trust environment, at least within software, like, you know, the nine to five in the office just doesn't make any sense. And so, yeah, that's a bite that, that probably contributes to a bifurcation of labor pool and maybe even, maybe even more segmentation of that, but the in-office versus virtual, I do think there is a divide there. But I think I'm also just like conscious of the fact that like, if I'm listening to this podcast and I work for a retail company or manufacturing or something like, I'm like, huh? I'm like listening to this guy talk and like, it might not make sense. But I think in software that, that is true. And maybe I'll go one step further to say that I think there is a day in the future when we look back and we realize that there was a mode that humans were working in relatively successful countries that were for, so fortunate to sort of say, do we need to be working, you know, majority of the week? There used to be a, a day when it was very common for people, for kids to be working and for there to be an un, unfettered sort of hours per week that people worked. And then fortunately, you know, National Labor Relations Act, you know, kind of helped put a stop to that. I think there'll be a day in the future where it's like, you don't work the majority of the week and kind of, you know, 
people who work now and there's hustle porn when there's people trying to, you know, kind of like, you know, it's oftentimes, you know, people who own companies saying, you know, like the way that you get to, to succeed is by working, you know, 80 hours a week. I think that's going to be laughable for many people in the future who have skills that are portable, who don't need to do that, who could be highly successful and also live like rich, full lives if they want to be working that long, or if they don't, they don't have to. And uh, that's probably part of this, this bifurcation that's happening. Yeah. So again, I feel like a stalker, but another post that I saw you post about was this idea of, of bright breaks where you've given employees an additional 12 days off. I'm curious, is this, is this y'all's way of sort of testing out, you know, shorter work weeks? Hmm. I've got to be careful what I say. If anyone's listening to this at my company, I, I really um, am interested. I was, you know, was interested in the idea of productivity and when are we, when are like, when and how do we become most productive in, in sort of really like knowledge economy type of jobs and software where again, the, the nine to five Monday through Friday is just kind of this weird relic. And the hypothesis we had was I bet if we actually all took a break as a company, the, the first Friday of each month, we won't skip a beat in terms of company metrics and all that sort of stuff. And, and, you know, that was the hypothesis that we sort of stack hands on as the executive team. So we, we did this as a pilot during the pandemic and we found that it was like universally loved. Like, and one of the reasons why employees loved it was because we were all taking the time at the same time. And it was during the work week, right? It was, it was during the work week when normally like we'd be working that day, we all taking off that things like meeting blocks, like no meeting blocks haven't been as interesting because it really depends upon your time zone. And like, is it all really, are we, is it kind of universally shared, but it goes back to trust. And like, we trusted that like, Hey, we're just gonna, like, people are just still gonna get their job done. And maybe it'll just be more refreshed. Maybe we'll come back with better ideas. Like they'll be more energized. Like if we do this. And so it was a contrarian thing, but if we actually stop working, we'll be a better company. And like, that's what was, that's what happened in, in the, in our analysis across the board. And so then we committed to it. And I think companies that are out there, I think, um, uh, maybe not, not, um, Indiegogo, but, um, there's a company that just announced, um, Kickstarter announced that they're going to pilot the four day work week next year. And I think it's really interesting because again, go back to trust, like, you know, how you get your job done. Some of these things that we're, that we're sort of like dealing with now, nine to five is Monday through Friday is kind of a relic. I think organizations that sort of like that are like boldly sort of plunge into those things of like breaking up the relic approaches to working are going to, the first to do it are going to have some really big gains because we also see um, the talent entering the workforce now the talent that sort of like had to graduate during the pandemic, right? Who had to like be on Zoom, who want to like live rich, full lives, who want to work in organizations that trust them, you know, that um, that sort of create environments that sound interesting for them to be working in. Um, that's not just about how you're paying. It's also about sort of how you're you know, treating your staff. And um, I think those organizations are going to win. And so, um, yeah, that's a little bit of sort of what was going on in our heads when we embraced that. So this might be a dumb question, but if you're an organization that's trying to assess how productivity has changed or is affected by having a four-day work week, how 
how does a company even go about measuring productivity? Is there, is there a way to do that? So um, there are engineering metrics out there. There's one called, I think it's called Dora. There are different, um, there's company metrics. Like when Microsoft, I think Microsoft Japan measured the effectiveness of their four day work week experiment. They measured revenue per employee because they have a very sales driven organization. And I don't know if there's one right way to measure productivity in like a knowledge, a knowledge economy versus like, Hey, we, we actually, we, we have a manufacturing line. It's like widgets per hour. Like in a knowledge economy, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, take your pick and whatever works for you. One really interesting thing to think about is in a high trust environment, where, you know, like if I was to ask you, Hey, versus your potential one through 10 scale, how productive are you right now versus your potential? It has no bearing on your competence, no bearing on, you know, your performance and anything. Just tell me people are pretty honest and they'll tell you, like, I know, I know, I know me better than anyone. I know if I'm like really hitting my, my max potential right now, I'll tell you, honestly, you could also, you can compare that to what managers think. And we asked people if they felt more or less productive before or after the bright breaks, we asked managers, did this hamper your team's productivity in any way? And like universally that was no, it didn't hamper it. And then universally, yes, it like do feel productive and you trust that you trust that it's real. Um, so that was a little bit of, for us just to ask people, just ask. And then managers, you know, if managers will tell you honestly, like, gosh, this bright break is really I got stuff to do. And like, you're forced us on us. And like, we're really, you know, we're really kind of playing behind the eight ball now because of our, you know, bright breaks, they would tell us. Right. And like, it was like 90%, 95% plus like managers, like, this is great. This is helping my teams more productive. So we trusted it. But, um, so that's, that's one thought. One common theme that I've heard in this conversation is this notion of, old relics of the past. And I love referring to, to them that way, these old practices that just are no longer relevant. And quite honestly, no one really knows why we do things this way. It's just the way that it's always been done. And I'm curious, I share with you kind of, you know, some, one of my hypotheses around like what the future will look like. Do you have any ideas or beliefs or hypotheses of your own that, uh, that, that you can share with us? Oh gosh, that's a good question. I think it's very likely that work and life will just continue to get very blurry. Um, and I, I want to sort of caveat that with like, I'm just thinking about the industry I'm in. And so the idea of blocks of time, the idea of synchronous work probably starts to continue to, to fade away the idea of blocks of time of work um, being done in, in increments probably fades away. The idea of how much you're working in term, in, in order to get stuff done continues to fade away because of a couple of different reasons through technology, through advances in um, text analytics and, and the AI. And like, we're going to have little helpers. That's for sure. We already seeing it with chat bots and everything. Like I was talking to someone who was trying to sell me like chat bots for HR, just like, Hey, you can like have these chat bots, help people answer questions that will just continue to get more and more refined. And because we want it, like, we don't like, we want to, frankly, just like, let's be honest, we want to work less. Right. I, I want to, I want to be productive. Right. I want to like do great things. I just know, like, we know that there's so much inefficiency in how we get stuff done 
how I find this information I need, how kind of burdensome it is. I want that to be uh, easier so that we can like achieve our innovation and our potential without the burden that we currently have to deal with. And so that means working less and it means less synchronous time and it means less blocks of time. And that, so the scary part of it is like, my gosh, does that mean less jobs? Because if we, if it takes us less time to do things, like there's going to be less jobs, that won't be the case. That's always a fear in every technological advance of like jobs are going to go away. New jobs are created, right? So that's what happens. And uh, new skills will need to be learned. So what our kids learn in school will probably need to continue to change. But that's a little bit of a prediction is like, we're going to work less, we're going to achieve more, and we're going to have technology that, that augments that. And so that's maybe a little Pollyanna and sort of utopia, but like that's, that would be my prediction. I think everybody could get behind that. My, my 11 year old, my 11 year old daughter certainly could. She found a way when they returned to the school here in Austin right after spring break. But like right before that they she had to go back, she had figured out like, okay, if I get all my homework done, within the first two hours of the day, I can build Legos and do crafts the rest of the day. Why do I need to spread all that workout over a six or eight hour period? Like, no, 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 I'm just gonna do it, you know, as quickly as I can focus and then spend the rest of my time on the things that I love. So I, I oh. think there, there may be something behind that. Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe what I'm, I'm speaking to a little bit is like, maybe breaking with some American sensibilities, like Europeans may be listening to this, but like, yeah, we already work less than, than you and like your, your Americans are crazy over there. Um, and so it's maybe a little bit more of a sort of a stretch for an American to sort of hear, but I think there's, there's other pockets of the world that are already sort of like already there. So hopefully what I'm saying doesn't sound too crazy. Not at all. So we just have a few closing questions that we like to ask all of our guests. So the first question that we have for you is, as a CHRO, what are the three to four metrics that, that you're looking at on a, on a weekly basis? Gosh. Um, so I look at our weekly close rates of technical hires. So as a, as a tech company trying to build products and features that are really intuitive for our creators, it's really powered by our technical talent. We're trying to hire people in Argentina and Spain and Nashville and remotely around the globe. And our pace of hiring technical talent on a weekly basis is something I'm, I'm constantly measuring. And I don't know if I could go to so far as to say weekly, but as, as, as much as I possibly can, I'm also measuring things like intent to stay. So, you know, as a, as a sort of like, it's like a weather forecast, a weather forecast of like, it's much more interesting there than looking at what your attrition is. Intent to stay, I think signals a, um, quite a bit, you know, in terms of um, your, your weather forecast for your culture. And then another thing I'm, I'm trying to look at as much as I possibly can is the experience of our, our ethnically underrepresented um, minorities and our, our female staff compared to majority groups. Um, you know, their, their experience, you know, um, in tech companies oftentimes isn't as great. We see this delta of majority groups saying things are great. My engagement is great. You know, and my intent to stay is great. Then you have this divide. And so we have a goal to have no delta there for ethnically unrepresented females, ethnically unrepresented minorities and female females. And so I'm constantly looking at that. And fortunately, our, our, we have no delta right now. And, and so that's something we continue to closely monitor. I love that last one. That's the first time that we've, that we've heard that on uh, these interviews. So going to have to 
take a note. <laughs> so what's what's something that you'd love to learn from future guests that we have on? Is there anything that you're trying to learn more about right now? Um, gosh, um, you know, I, I feel as though what I've been hearing from people is that like human psychology is changing and like neuroscience, the way that we're wired is changing. It'd be interesting to get like an actual, you know, um, uh, sort of neurobiologist or something, someone, someone who has a bio, like a, you know, neurobiology or psychology background, like what is actually happening as a professional? I'm a, I'm a you know, psychological expert and like, here's what's actually happening in the workplace right now. That'd be interesting. Um, so, um, but I like I that. think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that one. So I, I'm sure you've either encountered or worked with a lot of great people over the years. If we had to have one or two people onto the show, who would they be? Um, you know, one of the the speakers, um, a speaker, and uh, I think she does executive coaching and does a number of different things. Um, who, like, I, I still think of like blew me away with what she talked about. Um, Raj Kumari Niyogi um, uh, has uh, some talks that she gives on on that topic on neuroscience, in particular, this topic called epigenetics. Uh, and her coaching approach on epigenetics um, and and teams and team psychology um, through neuroscience and epigenetics. She's great. She's fantastic. Um, and uh, so, if, if I if I heard her talking someplace, I would stop everything and listen to her. Um, so Rajkumar Niyogi, and then you know another one who's more of a like a, um, a former HR practitioner now um, is a sort of renaissance person does a lot of different things. Steve Cadigan is the former head of HR at LinkedIn um, and just tremendously successful. And this now has got his hands in so many different things. Um, just you can stop and listen in awe at all the different things that he's doing and thinks and, and sort of sees and sort of like um, shares wisdom on. Those are both great recommendations. Well, David, that uh, that wraps up the the conversation. We're, we're so grateful for you joining us today. I think that there's a lot of, you know, great nuggets in here that our, our audience is going to love to hear. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks. thanks for ripping, David. Great to be here. Thank you, guys. Thanks for, for tuning in to another episode of the Modern People Leader. We, we really, really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating. It would mean the world to us. And connect with us on LinkedIn. We want to we wanna know what you think about the show. And uh, yeah, you can, you can find links to both of our profiles in the show notes. So thanks again for listening and, and see you on the next episode.